in the classic story of the Wizard of Oz, the, this, the whole movie culminates in a, in a reveal, all right? And the reveal is obviously Dorothy and, and uh, her crew have been trying to get home but also trying to accomplish these things in their own heart and character and everything like that. And they think that the one that can do it is uh, the wizard. And then they find out in the middle or in late, in, late in the movie, they find out that the, the story that they had been told to believe was not, or, or at least that everybody wanted to believe, maybe wasn't the whole story. And the curtain gets pulled back, and you hear the voice of the wizard, who's just a dude, saying, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, right? That's the famous line, uh, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. The man behind the curtain is the one telling you to pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And, and the concept is, interestingly, the whole, all of the people of Oz really kind of wanted to believe in this wizard as the story about who they were and how they came to be and everything like that. And, and eventually, Dorothy's job and, and her crew's job became to kind of pull the curtain back and show what was real so that things could really get done. All right, so, so in the scriptures, we have these stories that are told by the prophets, Okay, and the prophets are the curtain pullers of the Bible. So the, the prophets are the ones who, who go in and they help people see what they need to see. And often the things that they help people see are the things that people don't want to see. Are you with me? And so, so, so prophets tend to bring hard and difficult truths. And that's just the way it works. And that was not always fun. They were invited, uh, they were called by God, but they didn't often willingly go or at least... They didn't want to, to, to choose this reality, specifically because the ways that prophets were used was not just an, often a verbal message. It was that their lives became living art. Their lives became kind of the canvas that God painted on. So it wasn't just, I have a message for you. It's, hey, I need you to go and do this thing, and that is my message. What you're about to do is my message to my people. All right? So it gets very complicated. And, uh, and so, so we are going to talk for three weeks about the story of Hosea, all right? And the story of Hosea is really, really interesting, and it's super uncomfortable for a lot of it um, because of the, the content, and, uh, and it's incredibly beautiful, and it's incredibly challenging, and everything in the middle, all right? So before we get to this, let me just tell you a little bit about the, uh, about the background because we're going, like, we're going deep Bible today, and I'll tell you why it's going to be worth it. But we're, we're doing the deep dive uh, just for a little bit here into culture and context and, and scripture and how complicated it all is. But uh, so in the middle, in the mid-1700s B.C., all right, there's this guy named Hosea. And he is a prophet called by God. And he is, hap- he is living during the reign of a bunch of different kings. But the primary one is this guy named Jeroboam. And he's actually the second Jeroboam. And... Uh, I would really love to show you some of this stuff on screen, but my connection is still not working. Sorry, Tyler. If it does, I'll let you know, but I might need you to have the less comfy seat. Oh, it's still comfy seats back there. You're just, Tyler's amazing. He's here like one of the first people, and he has a thankless job because the only time anybody notices him is when I need him or something's not going right. Um, so yeah, just throw, throw the picture up there. Um, thanks. And then if it comes, I'll, uh, I'll let you know what, what else we need. Okay, so Jeroboam is, <laughs> I'm going to try to do this without, I'll just let you guys figure out connecting the dots. Jeroboam is a king of Israel who uh, 
things are going really well economically and militarily in the country, and he's giving a lot of lip service to God's faithfulness, and God's people are continuing to do all of the right worship things, but none of it is real. So, there's this leader, and, and he is leading them through a time of prosperity on the outside, but on the inside, and, and they think that their prosperity is kind of impressive spirituality as well, God's people do. But on the inside, their hearts have nothing to do with God's, okay? And so Hosea gets this fun task of living during this time where there's this massive amount of hypocrisy on the outside, but things look like they're going so well. And so, so uh, Israel, this is about 200 years after Israel and Judah, the northern and southern kingdom, have split from each other, okay? All right? And so what we're told about this guy, the first, verse of, the first verses of Hosea tell us that he was... Um, doing ministry during the time of Jeroboam. And then go ahead and show me the, uh, the slide from 2 Kings. There we go. Um, so, and here's what we learn about Jeroboam, okay? The second, second line is about him. So this is why we know a little bit more about him because Hosea doesn't mention him specifically very much because he didn't need to. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who he had, who, uh, which had caused Israel, which he had caused Israel to commit. So, this guy um, reigned. He wasn't doing the things that God cared about, but yet all of the language and the sacrificial system was still pumping out all the goods and services that it always had. Got it? So the people had um, eventually started to, to become really complicit with the prophets of Baal and the worship of Baal, or what we would say Baal. Baal is how kind of, it's a two-syllable word. And, uh, and, and so there was all of this mixture of worship that was happening. So people would, uh, in order to uh, get good crops, they would call to Baal, and then the crops would come, and then they'd enjoy those, and then on Saturdays they would go and they would worship the Lord. And they just, this had happened over and over and over again, and it had just become commonplace, okay? And so, um, so anyways, what ends up happening is the, the people have become allured so much with the powerful nations around them that they want to ally with them. They want to promote their own military power. And violence begets violence. And so Hosea watches while Assyria comes in and decimates the Israelite people in 722 B.C. All right? So, so don't worry if you don't care about history. That's fine. But Hosea watches this happen. It's in kind of the middle, near the end of his whole ministry reign. So he watches multiple kings rule and everything like this, but he says, listen, I see this coming. I see it happening because of what you're doing. You're removing yourself from the way of God, and you're going to live by that way. So the, the whole story of the Old Testament often is if people move away from, from God and act like every other nation, then they will experience the consequences of every other nation. You choose violence to live by, then you'll die by violence. It's just what happens when you choose to go in a different direction. So this happens, okay? So the book of Hosea is 25 years of ministry. That's what makes this really complicated. And it's just a grab bag of statements throughout these 25 years. So it's not linear except for right at the beginning. So as we look at Hosea, it's not like I can say, okay, we're going to do Hosea 1 through 5, Hosea 6 through 10, Hosea 11 through 15 or 14. So we're not going to do that. But instead, we're going to look at different emphases of why the prophet Hosea is incredibly relevant to our understanding of God's character today. All right, so 
Fair enough. Here we go. Every prophet has an image that drives their prophecies. Sometimes those images are literary devices, and like I said, sometimes they're real-life theater. But they all had this similar role of pulling the curtain back, right? Um, To show what's true and what might become true if their destructive behavior continues. So, let's read Hosea, chapter 1. I'm just going to read it to you. I don't have, if, sometimes I've got stuff up there, but sometimes it's more fun to just let you hear it instead of, um, because we're we're not going to do a lot of word studies and stuff like that. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, which were the kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoiash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go and marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So you can imagine Hosea being a single guy. Maybe faithfully praying, like maybe some of you have at one point, that God would have the perfect woman in mind for him, right? Uh, you know, can you imagine Hosea, God, God, bring me the one, the one that will complete me. And God's response is, I have somebody in mind. <laughs> and so as weird as we want to think about a story like this, God says, actually, I want you to go and find this woman. She has a very poor reputation. She's a prostitute. She's known many men. And I want you to marry her. Okay? And he says, your physical life is going to be a picture of the relationship that I have to my people. All right? And so he marries her, and they have a child, but the marriage is really tragic. Number one, Hosea knows what he's getting into when he marries her. He's been told that, this is a, that, that she's experienced a lot of brokenness, and he marries her. But after they have a child, she chooses to continue in her ways. Okay? And so there's this tragicness that happens in the relationship. All right? Um, she, she returns to her old ways of life, and she leaves him. And so here's what we get in chapter 1, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call the first child, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Weird stuff, sounds very dark. It is very dark. We're going to get back to what that means later. But Jezreel means scattered. So he says you're going to name your first child scattered about because your people have moved so far away from me that there's no unity among them anymore. All right? So then he has a second child. And the second child, or actually, then Gomer has a second child. All right? It's not actually, it's not actually Hosea, as we'll find out later. Um, Okay, Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. The Lord said to Hosea, call her Loruhamah, all right? And here's what that means, not loved. This is brutal. This is brutal. All right. So God is using this idea of Hosea, and he's saying, listen, I'm going to communicate through this family story what is going on right now. And he says this brutal name, you're going to name your second child not loved. And it's worse, he actually explains it. He says, for I will no longer show love to Israel that I should forgive at all. Yet I will show love to Judah. I will save them not by bow, sword, or battle, or horses, or horsemen, but I will be the Lord their God and save. Okay, 
Just roll with me right now. After she gave birth and she had weaned Laruama about three years later, Gomer had another son, which she called Lo-Ami, which means we're not getting any better with what's happening right now, which means not my people. All right. So in today's language, we would hashtag not loved and not my people for what the message is that God is giving right now. Have you ever had a moment if you're a parent? Let's actually go on and then I'll say this. Um, For you, name him lo ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people and I am not your God. So we're getting some really harsh language right now, all right? But have you ever been in a situation, maybe with your own children, if you've got children, where you're so frustrated by something that happens that you say, like, that's not even, like, that's not even our family. This is not our family. This is not what we do. This is not how Millers are supposed to respond to things, buddy. (laughs) Because whether that's good parenting or bad parenting, it's very possible that those words have come out of my mouth in the past. Like, this is not what we do. Like, you're not acting like my son right now. So that's, that's the sense that at this point, God's people have moved so far away in their heart that God says there's no family resemblance anymore. There's no connection. What does it mean for you to be my people if nothing that you're doing reflects the heart that I have for the world? Okay, so that's how bad this gets. All right, so now we're going to move on because there's a huge verse, there's a huge word in verse 10. And verse 10 starts with the word yet. So we get this intense judgment. Intense, what is going on? Yet, verse 10. Yet, the Israel, which means nevertheless, in spite of this. Powerful, powerful words. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which can't be measured or counted. This is similar to what he promised in Genesis 12, 12 to Abraham one day. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. What the heck are we supposed to do with scriptures that go up and down like this? And why on earth are we spending a few weeks to talk about this story? The story is because that yet is really important. Because after this happens, and after, after that declaration of you are not my people, which matched up with a Babylonian phrase that you would speak to the sons of a, di- of a divorced woman or the children of a divorced woman to, to talk about um, um, disowning, okay? To say you are not my son is to say that there is a disconnection here that feels very permanent. Okay, so God goes back and says, even though that's kind of the feeling that's going on right now, it's not the end of the story. Okay, and what happens in chapter 3 is absolutely fascinating. So in chapter 3, we find out that Gomer has gone even after they've been married, and she has completely left the relationship, and the relationship is done. And then in chapter 3, here's what we have. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again even though she's loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Oh, girl, those raisin cakes. Some of you who have a relationship with Cinnabon can understand how raisin cakes 
you know, could, uh, could lead you into idolatry. But no, raisin cakes were a, a reference to, in worship to Asherah or Ishtar, two of the, the Babylonian gods. Um, they were stamped and, and used as fertility worship and all this other stuff. So, so anyways, he's talking about idolatry. But here's the thing. I love that, that in the verse it says, uh, go show your love to your wife again. So the command to Hosea is not go and take her back. It's go and show her your love again. So apparently, Hosea has this love. Even though he knew what he was getting into, he has this love for this woman. And God says, go show her your love again, despite all of this brokenness, despite running away. And so he does. So he receives her. All right? And so, so this, this image over and over, and we're just trying to establish this so that you understand the story. This image over and over again um, is, uh, is that, that God has been faithful. But after coming to the promised land, God's people forgot their God and began to worship the Canaanite gods. Their lives stop reflecting the goodness of relationship, and there's anger, there's heartbreak, there's despair, but it's never without hope coming back over and over and over again. There's a natural consequence to withdrawing from God that we see in the book of Hosea, okay? And that is the natural consequence of withdrawing from God is that we don't experience the benefits of being with God. Does that make sense? The natural consequences of withdrawing with God, from God, running away, is that we don't get the benefit of the beauty of the relationship with God. It's its own self-defining judgment. This is what happens. Okay. Um, you lose the experience of being loved, of feeling loved, of being a part of a family, of feeling valuable, of feeling like you have infinite worth. There's so much of that reality in here. But with a story like this, I want to just take a moment and, and help us unpack some really strange things that happen in the book of Hosea that might make us a little bit uncomfortable, but are incredibly, uh, incredibly beautiful as well. And the first thing that we see over and over in, a, in uh, the book of Hosea, all right, is that God is emotional. Have you ever thought about that phrase? I don't know how that makes you feel to think about that. I don't know if you like thinking that God is emotional or you don't like thinking God is emotional. One of the phrases that Christian uh, culture loves to use is that God is unchanging. God is the same all the time. But when we're not careful, what that can become is God is this kind of stoic being that doesn't actually have feelings. God never changes. I don't like that phrase personally. God is always faithful. I love that phrase. God is constantly loving. I love that phrase. But, but what we see in the scriptures is a God who experiences feelings strongly, who gets so frustrated, who gets so full of love that he can't contain it over and over and over again. And so to understand the book of Hosea and how strange it is and how there's highs and lows that come intermittently all over the place is to understand and encounter a God that feels very deeply. I told you this wasn't linear, so we're going to jump to Hosea 11 real quick. And I want you to hear, in the midst of all of this frustration, and don't you understand you've broken relationship with me, and you're going to enter into destruction because of these things? Hold on. Listen to chapter 11, and just take it in as literary right now, as this beautiful piece of literature. For when Israel was a child, I loved him. So now we move metaphors. Hosea does that. It's really complicated. So we're, we're moving away from the husband and wife metaphor, and we're moving into a child-parent metaphor. And it goes back later on in this chapter. 
When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals. They burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim, which is the same as Israel, to walk, taking them by the arms. But they didn't realize it was I who healed them. I took them by the arms, but they didn't even realize my role. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt, and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to turn? A sword has flashed in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me, even though they call me the Most High. I will by no means exalt them. But how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? These are, these, are, uh, these are peoples who have been destroyed by violence. My heart is changed within me and all my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate, devastate Ephraim ever again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against your cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west, from Assyria, fluttering like doves from Egypt. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. The frustration of feeling like not my people with the compassion of a heart that burns so much. That was really close. I've always figured that I need a table here. It drives me crazy. I'm not very good at this whole uh, simple thing. <sighs> Frustration, yes, but the final word is over and over and over again. Compassion. But look at this emotional thing. Think about Jesus. Consider Jesus. Jesus is very unlike Buddha in some ways. Uh, it's not enlightenment that Jesus is after. It's loving relationships. So think about how emotional Jesus is in the Gospels. Frustration, anger, love, forgiveness, loss. Like where do we get this idea of a stoic, unchanging God? That's from the Greeks. It's not from the Hebrews, okay? Greek thought was where we got the idea that God is completely unchanging in an emotional way. Maybe in character, certainly, but not emotion. Jesus, we are told, is described as greatly distressed in Mark 14, sorrowful, troubled in Matthew 26. He even admits that his soul is so overwhelmed with sorrow to the point that he feels like he's about to die in Matthew 26. Okay? He weeps. He shouts. He proclaims. He criticizes. He energizes. And he actively loves. And frequently, his compassion stirs and it changes what he does and where he goes. This, the story that Jesus this, this is the crazy thing. The story is that Jesus is affected by those around him. God seems to be influenced by us in the scriptures. God seems to be influenced by people in the scriptures. I don't know how that makes you think. And it brings up tons of mystery. And you can take that idea way too far to what we talk about where God becomes my spiritual ATM. Where I, I plug in my correct code and God gives me what I want. This is so problematic on so many levels. But on the other side, God is so completely disconnected with us that, there's, that, that we have this emotionally distant God. And I'm not sure if any of us really want that reality. So it might make you uncomfortable to know that the scriptural story over and over again is that God is affected deeply by people. But it's what the story is. 
and there's beauty to something like that. It's very, very fascinating, but it's important that we don't lose it. Um, Jesus is stirred toward compassion because he sees the faith of people. God hears the people's cries throughout the Old Testament, and he turns in a different direction. This is the story. So if it makes you uncomfortable, it's okay. But I would, I would suggest that, that uh, if we want to have a healthy relationship with Jesus, we have to start thinking about God as being an emotional being. We're told in the book of Luke that when one sinner who's walking away from God turns toward God, that's what repent means, turns toward God, turns toward the way of love, turns toward receiving grace, turns toward loving the world actively in the way of the kingdom, that there is rejoicing in heaven. There is jumping up and down in the angelic realm that God is fist pumping. This is the story that we get according to the Gospels. That when people turn toward God, there is like crazy celebration, emotional joy. That's the story. So we get an emotional God. But it's more than just God being emotional. Um, I, uh, I want to bring you back to, uh, to one passage that I might have somewhere here. Right there. There it is. Okay, I want to bring you back to this passage that was really weird where, where God tells Hosea to go back. Go show love to your wife again, though she's loved by another man and is an adulteress, okay? So we didn't show you the second part of the story. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver. Why does he buy her? 15 shekels is half the cost of a normal female slave. He goes and he finds his wife, his former wife, and she's owned by another, but she's not even owned as a slave. She's just owned to be able to do the bidding of the man that she has been purchased by. Okay? And so what we're seeing here is that nobody puts any value of worth on her. Fifteen shekels is like pennies. So he buys her because she, he buys her in the midst of her being worthless to anybody else except for someone who wants to use her or someone who has such a deep love that they will reclaim her. And then I told her, you're to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I'll behave the same way toward you. This is the interesting thing. We're not going to get into this too deeply. But what God says is, hey, there's going to be a long period of reconnecting. And by purchasing in the cultural world, Hosea would have certain rights to Gomer, to her body. He's now purchased her. Wife or not, he owns her. And he's saying, listen, you need to take some time to recover. And there's going to be even distance between us for a season. And I'm, going to, I, I'm not going to push myself on you either. I will wait. I will be patient with you. It's a fascinating little glimpse of the story. This, this reconnection comes at great cost to Hosea, not because of the shekels, but because of the relationship. So one of the interesting things that we see in this story is that um, God is willing to suffer for the sake of maintaining relationships. God is willing to have his heart broken over and over again in this story. Gomer struggles to be able to grasp what it means to be in a relationship with Hosea. She has habits that she continues to go back to. And Hosea says, you know what, not only am I going to bring you back and I'm going to deal with all of that emotional baggage, but I'm going to deal with the fact that my reputation is now tarnished by being connected with you. Do you understand that? 
you understand the idea that, that what we're encountering is a God who is willing to have his reputation tarnished for the sake of maintaining relationship with unfaithful people? Does that make sense? The idea that, um, that, that the God that we encounter in Hosea is a God that is willing to suffer. Um, part of this suffering is the willingness to be humiliated. Dorothy Sayers says that Jesus suffered three humiliations. The incarnation, becoming human, the cross, and then the church. Because <laughs> sometimes the church ends up being a bit like Israel. Where despite the love of God, the church gets off keel and becomes drunk on power or political influence or backbiting or... or um, or missing the joy of what God's all about for the sake of judgment and drawing lines about who gets to be in or out. And one of the interesting things that we see in the story is that God's faithfulness represents a God that's willing to continue with us no matter what, to continue to be faithful even when people are faithless. But that can often, that can often come at great cost. I want to explain what I mean by this um, because the story of Hosea's uh, heartbreaking faithfulness is the fact that God bears the hurt of those that he loves at great cost. This is a sin-bearing God. You might have heard this before, but the glimpse that Hosea gives us of a God who is willing to bear his lover's sins is how we start to understand Jesus through the New Testament. Um, I'm going to try to help, help us understand this because I, like, uh, I feel like in some ways... Um, this could take us down a path that, that is problematic because we don't have enough time to talk about it. But we're going to do it for just a second anyways. The idea that God suffers is so central to the scriptures, but we often don't quite understand how God suffers because much of the Bible makes it look like God is just punishing all the time. Are you with me on that? Like, the suffering nature of God, we only see here and there in the Old Testament, maybe, and then we see it very much in Jesus. But what does it mean if we have, if we have a theology that says, listen, Jesus, as the scriptures say, is the full culmination of all that we understand about God, okay? Jesus is not the nice guy part of God. Jesus is the exact, the radiance of God, Hebrews says, and the exact representation of his being. In the book of John, no one has ever seen God. And God has come to us in, his, in the prophets in the past, but now God has come to us in himself, in his son. So Jesus is the center, and therefore we get to test every image of God in the Bible against the character of Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay, this is really, really important because we're about to talk about how we view the Old Testament. So one way that we see God being a suffering God is by literally bearing the sins of his people in Jesus on the cross, Okay. Jesus says, my people, on, on the cross, Jesus is hanging and he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. In other words, forgive my people because they don't understand your character. Does that make sense? Forgive my people, God, because they don't understand your character. And he bears that sin. He doesn't just bear the sin of all the wrong, the, the wrong like bad things that people do. He literally bears the sin of the misunderstanding of God's people. Okay. If we understand that Jesus is the full culmination of everything, and I feel like I'm going to lose you here, but because I'm, I'm not being as clear as I want to be, to be really honest. If we understand that Jesus is the full culmination of God's people, of God, then what we also understand is that there might be images and depictions of God in the Old Testament 
that also speak to the reality of, Father, forgive them for they don't understand what they're doing. Okay? Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes, the way God bears our sins. We see Hosea suffering because he links himself up a second time with someone who gives him a bad representation, a bad reputation. That's your wife, Hosea? That's your wife? You must be a certain kind of person, right? Okay, so throughout history, we see images of God linking up with people And then even in the Old Testament, we often see glimpses of a God that doesn't look anything like Jesus. And part of the sin-bearing nature of God is that God is willing to take on a representation of himself that isn't actually true and bear his people's sins for the sake of eventually moving us toward Jesus. How many of you are completely confused with what I just said? Because it's okay if you are. Okay, so so here's here's what I mean. the beginning, I told you uh, about Hosea 1. I want you to look at the bottom. Hosea 1, he says, listen, I'm going to, I'm, Jesus, or, or God is declaring judgment on Jezreel or on, on the house of Jehu, okay? You don't, need to, you don't need to care about anything else except for in 2 Kings, what ends up happening is commanded by God. Jehu goes and slaughters all these people at Jezreel. Because Elijah comes to him and says, God told me to tell you this. The word of the Lord declares it. And then later in Hosea, we get an image where Hosea says, you're going to experience all this brokenness because of the wrong that you did at Jezreel. God commands it. Hosea is doing some self-correcting right now. Hosea is actually saying that's not the character of God. You got it wrong. And so the way that we go ahead and journey through a sin-bearing God is by understanding that sometimes God bears the sins of being misrepresented, even in the scriptures. I'm not trying to destroy your love of the scriptures. In fact, I have an incredibly high, incredibly high view of the scriptures, including the inspiration of the scriptures as being divinely inspired. However, we have to understand that if we are to believe that Jesus is the exact representation of God's character, that part of God being a loving, sin-bearing God means that sometimes he bears the reputation of his people when they get it wrong. He still accepts that linkage. Scholar Greg Boyd says this, Knowing what we know about God through his self-revelation on Calvary, on the cross, we ought to be able to discern the true character of God in the depths of even the most seriously distorted portraits of God in the Old Testament. God was bearing the sinful perspectives of his covenant people, including the horrifically violent concepts they had of him. He was accommodating their hard-heartedness of his people, stooping to their level to move his people in the right direction. The fact that God was willing to stoop in this fashion and bear the sin of his people reveals God's true character, anticipating the revelation of God ultimately revealed on the cross. So even the depictions of God in the scriptures that look nothing like Jesus, we can understand are actually a part of God bearing a mischaracterization of what was ultimately true in order to continue the relationship. This is what we see in Hosea. Going back and taking in Gomer again and saying, I don't care what you think of me. I'm going to continue to walk with her until she gets it. You see how much hope there is in a story like that? 
See how much hope there is in a story of, of God saying, I will bear whatever I have to. I will, I, will, I will claim my people at great cost to me. Cost in character, cost in reputation, or cost in patience and time. And this is what we get over and over and over again. That's why our view of, of Jesus being the epicenter of God's character is so crucial. Um, Hosea is so significant because we can, ser- we can sense the Spirit of God breaking through dominant assumptions and truly giving us a glimpse of Jesus. So the way that we view the Scriptures, specifically the Old Testament, is we look and we say, okay, where do I see glimpses of a Jesus-like God breaking through? Because throughout all of the Old Testament, there's also images of every other God. We've talked about this before. I lead a whole seminar on it. There's images of gods that look like every other God, but then every now and then there's somebody like Hosea that comes along. And that shows a God whose heart breaks for his people, even in the midst of going so crazy with frustration sometimes because they're destroying each other and living with violence and everything like that. And so he comes and he says, but the ultimate heart of God is that my, I will never, and check this out, I won't carry out my fierce anger. Why? Why? He said, my heart is changed within me and all my compassion is aroused. And why is all of my compassion aroused and why will I not devastate? Because I'm God and not a man. Because people's way of doing things are when you get angry, you take out your anger on people. People's way of doing things are I go to war with you when we disagree. Whether that's emotionally within my own family or whether that's between countries. That's the way of mankind. And God says, why am I going to not act on my frustration and anger? Because I'm God, not a man. That's the way you would do it. My compassion always overrides my judgment. Oh, that's beautiful. For I am God and not a man. So we get these images of the frustration of a, of a parent or a spouse who loves their, their spouse so much, even though their spouse is running in the exact opposite direction and says, I will continue to work for you. I will claim you back no matter what the cost is, even though it frustrates me to no end sometimes, even though I feel rage and anger even. We don't like that idea. But Jesus definitely felt rage, friends. He just didn't act on it against people because he was always overcome with compassion. That's the character of God that we see emerging in Hosea. That's the character of God that we see in Christ. The idea that God suffers um, is something that was not new to Jesus or a surprise to him. In Luke 9, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. He understood that part of the character of God meant suffering on behalf of his people. Hebrews 12 says this, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. What does it say about Jesus? Endured the cross. Why? Because of joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Ah, think about that. Jesus suffers because of joy. That's how much God longs for a relationship with his people. Because suffering with them, suffering for them, brings reconciliation. And because it brings reconciliation and togetherness, then it's all worth it, according to God. It's always worth it if the end goal is connection. So that's, that's the story today. God, uh, Hosea reveals at the beginning of the story here a God who feels, who is emotional. And he feels unending love and faithfulness for you, even in the midst of frustration, even in the Old Testament story. 
and God is willing to suffer to bear pain, God's own pain and our sin, if that's what it takes to connect with us. It is a reflection of Jesus that shows us the consistent character of a God who is actually overcome with love, not with judgment. So maybe the helpful thing for you today is to grasp how passionately you are loved by God, how emotional God gets as the spouse of his people. Maybe that's what you need to walk away with. And and I think until that happens, we struggle with being motivated to be transformed. If I don't feel like I am loved passionately, it's really hard for me to want to change at all. I just don't feel motivated. Maybe if you feel like you're worthless, you'll be motivated to change. But most of the transformation in our lives come from when we feel deeply loved and, and, and invited into something better. And so until we realize how passionately God loves us in a very internal, personal way, it becomes difficult for us to ever move in the right direction because we're just crushed by judgment, crushed by disappointment, thinking that God is just never overcome with compassion for us, only annoyed, only irritated at us all the time. So maybe that's what you need to to do. The, The way that we leave idols behind in our lives is by understanding that God is deeply, deeply in love with his people and will never give up on them. And secondly, maybe we need to understand that God's willing to suffer for us, that God will do the painstakingly patient work of waiting for us as we grow out of destructive attitudes and actions. Um, This has to be personal. We will talk a lot about how later in Hosea, justice and worship are connected. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. And justice and worship are the same thing. You can't have one without the other. That's about living our lives out there. But the, the first story is about God's radical love for us and living our lives in here. And how that changes us when we receive a God who is radically faithful in those ways. So we're just going to take a moment, pause, pray, and then um, I can hopefully help clarify everything that I've confused over the last half hour. So let's just be still. Uh, God... This is a complicated story and, and, and book, uh, but we sense that you're up to something in it. Please uh, help us to grasp the beauty of a story that circles around and ends with compassion consistently. Help us to understand your character in the midst of it. Amen.